Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 89, Venerable Robina Corton, Bodhisattva CEO. Join us this week as we converse with one of the most energetic and high-powered nuns that we know, Venerable Robina Corton. Listen in to find out what it means to be a Bodhisattva in the modern world. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. If you're joining us live, thank you for joining us. And if you're joining us after the fact on the podcast, thank you as well. For the podcast listeners, just so you know, we're starting to run a little experiment where we're live streaming each of our interviews as they're happening, uncut. You get to see the uglier side of the Buddhist geeks, (laughs) uh, the geekier side in some cases. (laughs) And you can check that out at live.buddhistgeeks.com and check out our schedule of upcoming interviews. And today, we're very grateful to be joined by Venerable Rubina Curtin. She's a Tibetan Buddhist nun and has been for, looks like, 30 years or more. And she's a student of Lama Tupten Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche. And she's had a long-standing working relationship with their organization, the FPMT. First as the editorial director of Wisdom Publications, which many of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. And then as the editor of Mandala Magazine. And currently, you're the director of the Liberation Prison Project, which uh, supports Buddhist practice and studies for prisoners throughout the U.S. and Australia. So, sounds like you've stayed busy, and you're also a Dharma teacher as well, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I talk about the Dharma. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, it sounds like you stay pretty busy. I like to be busy. I like to be a speedy girl. <laughs> All right. Great. So, just starting off with the work you're doing now... The Liberation Prison Project. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the aim of that project and and what you guys do there. Well, we've been going about 14 years. I've been in this country about, no, 12 years. I've been in this country since 94. It's about 14 years. I came first to center in one of our centers in California, Vajrapani Institute, and then very soon I was appointed editor of Mandala, the magazine, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, and that's also here just in uh, the Bay Area, south of uh, San Francisco. And while I was editing Mandela in about 96, we got a letter from one young man, it seemed an ex-gangster from Los Angeles, a Mex- young Mexican-American, Arturo. He had read a book of Lama Yeshis and was moved by the talk of compassion. Mm. So I wrote back and sent a book and eventually he took refuge. And then within a year, we had 40 people writing. And now, 2008, we're a non-profit. We're based in San Francisco. I have a full-time staff of eight We have a team of 180 or so volunteers around the world. We have staff in Australia. We're also supporting in Mongolia, Mexico, Spain, Colombia now also. Wow. And the aim really is just, it's sort of well grown organically, you know, from that one letter. So the heart of what we're doing is really on the basis of letters, people who write to us and ask about Buddhism. So we have a whole system, a really good database. And we basically respond to letters. And then if you've written for like the third time, we've sent books and you still are interested, we assign you to one of our correspondence teachers. And then basically we write to people. We guide them in their practice. We Mm. become their friends. We give them correspondence courses. We send them books. We take their phone calls. Mm. We give them refuge. They take bodhisattva vows. This is how our project is developing, you know? Yeah. When I was 
volunteering for a short bit with the Prison Dharma Network, I remember one of the main things was how hard it is to get material sometimes into prisoners. Have you guys found that to be one of the challenges? Well, it's the nature of prison bureaucracy. It's more intense than many other bureaucracies. And so why we've begun from the early days to have a... Re- we need to have a really good database so we can uh, really control what we're doing and sort of be the master of it. So we need to know all the regulations. We need to know exactly who can get what and can you have a hardback and you're not allowed to have staples of this one. You can't uh. have paper more than this weight at that prison. So as long as you know your regulations, yes, we have to be very cautious. Mm. Yeah, I remember at the Prison Darwin Network reading some of the some of the letters from inmates and just being amazed at how deeply committed they seem to be to learning more and to practicing. I'm sure you found that to be the case with your work. Well, I think, you know, for any of us, isn't it? When our backs are against the wall, when everything has gone wrong in your life, when you're not just floating along thinking you're happy but just fulfilling your attachment, Mm. then I think you really find resources inside yourself that you didn't know you had, you know, and we're finding that. I mean, American prisons are some of the worst in the modern world. Mm. You know, the sentencing is really dire. These young men with long, long sentences, Mm. the situations aren't very pleasant. The prisons aren't a nice place to live. The amount of violence and gang activity, as well as other things, and so you, we're seeing, yes, it's very inspiring, very humbling, actually, mm. that um, those who are serious, those for whom the Buddhist tools are really practical, really can put them into practice. They somehow understand quite deeply. Mm. Buddhas talk about this a level of suffering, you know, mm. the suffering of chains, the suffering of having attachment and anger and pride, this inner prison. They're really very conscious of this, and so they take it very seriously. Mm. Have, you, have you guys found that when people actually leave prison, having done this kind of practice and had the support from organizations like your own that, that they have a, a better time integrating? Because it's, it's really well known that integration after prison is one of the hardest things or seems to be. Well, it depends, you know. I mean, we don't hear from many of them when they've left prison. Many don't leave prison, of course. They're on death row. They've got life sentences. Right. But we're developing a network of people who've gotten out of prison. Two of our eight staff here are ex-prisoners. One of our staff mm. in Australia is an ex-prisoner. Several of our correspondence teachers are also ex-prisoners. What was it like moving from the world of books and magazines and, and kind of managing that to a world of, of managing this kind of project, which, which actually sounds like it's even maybe a little more complex in terms of the organizational side? Well, yes, organizationally, it certainly is, you know, because I'm running this one. I'm in charge of it. I'm in charge of raising the forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 that we spend every month right. on both activities. But I, I like the challenge. I like running things. I, I think the West, we have very marvelous management systems, and I'm really learning a lot about that so that you can really do a better job. And, I mean, I haven't left the editing and the um, publishing. I still edit books. Oh, you do? Uh, nice. Yes. It was a fairly natural evolution. One of my jobs is to teach, and so, in a sense, part of what I'm doing is helping teach prisoners, and so that part hasn't changed. Right. The management side is a new one, but I thoroughly enjoy that. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of uh, monastics get into management? I mean, is that, that no, seems... Yeah. not at all. <laughs> How has that been, being a monastic and also being just thoroughly enmeshed well, in that world? Well, I have my bodhisattva vows as well, don't I? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My bodhisattva vows, you know, enable me to... I have a commitment to work for the sake of others. I have my monastic vows, and indeed, I, they, they, they need to be kept seriously and purely, but you also mm. have this other level of vows that allow you, that give you permission to do things that your monastic vows don't, you know, and so there's various levels of vows, as you're aware. Mm. I'm not breaking my vows. Mm. Interesting. terrible, wouldn't it? Hmm. <laughs> well, that's. I, I kind of want to, uh, if you're okay with it, just go down that road a little more because because yeah, this isn't most of the teachers we speak with. Uh, many of them are lay people, but the yes. the, the monks or the monastics that we've spoken with, uh, your Dharma sister Tupton Chodron, she's also running an organization, uh, right. a, a retreat center, and so 
Yeah, it's so fascinating that in the modern world, this is some of the th- kinds of things that people are in the Dharma are called to do, especially for lay folks, to run organizations, work with people, deal with a lot of complexity and speed. And I'm just wondering, what are the kinds of things that you found uh, useful in terms of dealing with that or working with that world? Well, I mean, the commitment, if you have the body such a vows, your commitment is to want to benefit others, mm. isn't it? This is one of your actual commitments, you, and to do use any means necessary that's, that's to benefit others. Mm. You know, and uh, because of the particular Mahayana interpretation of how we create karma, and I think this is a crucial piece, mm. you know, as we know, the word karma means action. It's the very heart of Buddha's philosophy, his, his explanation of the universe and how and why things happen. It's absolutely central to a Buddhist approach to life. So given that every thought, every word, and every action is necessarily a karma or an action and leaves an imprint in the mind that ripens in the future as our experiences, and so the, the Mahayana interpretation of this, and this is really quite a crucial point, is that the key factor in the creating of karma, in the doing of actions, is not the action itself in determining whether or not it's virtuous or non-virtuous. It's the motivation, the reason you do it. And we look at our ordinary life, we can see that's very clear. You know, you can, you can be generous, which is considered a positive action, but if you, let's say, have a manipulative motivation, then you can say that the action you just left in your mind there, the seed you planted, is a negative one. Well, you know, you could say the same with, um, here I am being a nun, in not, not able to touch money and shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that, but I've got my body such for vows that are to do with benefiting others. And so the actions that you do, if they're correct then they're motivated by the wish to benefit. I mean, they have to be this. I'm not saying I'm a very high person, but if I don't take that very seriously, then what is the point of my life? You know, it kind of makes nonsense of my life, doesn't it? Mm. The motivation, the reason for doing it, the daily purpose of my life surely has to be the wish to benefit others. And so, you know, in my life, there I was editing a magazine and a letter comes along from a young Mexican-American prisoner who's very serious and I take it seriously and I respond. And if you're continuing to really try and respond to what comes to you in your life, which is what a bodhisattva is trying to do, then, you know, what came to me was another letter. And then by the end of a year, 40 letters. And then part of me kept thinking, I can't do this. I don't have the money. Mandela doesn't have the money. I don't have the time. Mm. But there was right in front of me an opportunity, you know. So I've run with it and allowed to grow. So if my motivation isn't to benefit others, then I'm a pretty crazy person. Mm. It's the motivation behind what you do. It gives it, uh, enables it, doesn't it? Mm. Thank you. Do you ever find that as these opportunities to benefit other people arise, and, and like you're saying, you know, didn't even feel like you had time when this new avenue, this new thing was obviously just right in front of you, and yet clearly, uh, based on what you're saying about the Bodhisattva vow, like, that you felt compelled, you had to take some sort of action on this. Um, I think, you know, I think we stay in our comfort zone, don't we, Vince? You know, if we look at the nature of attachment and how primordial it is, how it's just this bottomless pit of neediness to get what we want every second, and then in our daily life sense, that just means, you know, be comfortable, have a nice house, a nice relationship, a pleasant job, and then we get into this nice, pleasant rhythm, which is what we all think is happiness, but we mm-hmm. all know, according to Buddha, it's a honey-covered razor blade, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a strong tendency in us to want to be comfortable, even if we call ourselves Buddhists. We do our little bit of meditation. We do our little bit of mindfulness. We do a little bit of helping people, but we're really bone lazy. We can see this, the tendency to not stretch ourselves. So, you know, as you know, in the perfections of the Bodhisattva, the fourth one is called joyful effort. 
And it's the actual, the opposite of it is this deep tendency to be lazy. And there are three kinds. You know, the first kind is just simply can't be bothered. The second one is always putting it off, always procrastinating. And let's face it, the thing we procrastinate doing is the thing that takes too much effort. Mm. And the third one, which is really very pervasive, which I think is the basis of so much of our inability to do anything in our lives, in, in our spiritual practice, it's uh, this really strong belief, oh, my God, I can't do that. I'm, it's not possible. I can't achieve that. Mm. It's very scary. So, you know, if we're really trying to stretch our minds, which surely as a Buddhist is what we're trying to do, I mean, we're trying to get rid of the neuroses, rid of the delusions, which are the cause of suffering. We're trying to develop our wisdom, our kindness, our love, our generosity, our patience. Well, that means it's a big, fat balance, you know. It's like Lance Armstrong going up his mountains. It's not mm. comfortable, but you have to do it if you want to progress. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the attitude of the Bodhisattva, and I I think we, whether you call yourself that or not, I think it's a really obvious way of practicing. It is to really keep your eyes wide open and see the opportunity right in front of you and not just assume, oh, well, you know, someone else will do it. If it's right in front of you, there it is. It's a challenge right in front of you and it's your job to run with it, you know. Mm. My feeling is it's very much this. Then I think you're wide awake to life and you're really using your life in a skillful way, not just sitting back and just, again, like I said, in your comfort zone. Right, right. Do you think it's possible for people? I mean, I certainly I see this uh, a lot in the in the world where people don't really have any sense of what's going on internally. But do you do you find that it's possible to go a little too far in terms of action and and not take the time to really stop and and check in and actually do the kind of mind training that's that's also part of the the bodhisattva? Vow? Does that happen as well? Sometimes. Well, if you're not doing the mind training, you're not doing your job properly, are you? If you're not doing the job properly if you're not doing all the parts of your practice you know mm. action has to be based upon upon wisdom you know as the Dalai Lama often says compassion is not enough you know I, know, I like this analogy that a bird needs two wings wisdom and mm. compassion well compassion is the action wing isn't it mm. that's the action wing that's where you put your money where your mouth is and help others mm. So clearly, if you're not doing the wisdom side, which is the one of introspection, of looking at your mind, of understanding your mind, of going beyond the delusions, of doing all your practices, if you're not doing that, then your compassion is limited anyway, and you're just being neurotic, aren't you? Mm. Yeah. Don't you agree? I totally. (laughs) Right. Um, As the Dalai Lama often says, compassion is not enough. You need wisdom, and the wisdom wing is the work that you're talking about. Right. So you can't just have one wing. It's just foolish. Right. And you can't just have the wisdom wing. Looking at your, you know, you've got to put your money where your mouth is and get out and benefit others according to your ability. We must do this, you know, but the two have to go together. Mm. Thank you. So shifting gears maybe just a little bit, I also noticed that you in past years have led pilgrimages to India and Nepal and Tibet uh, as ways of raising funds for the projects that you're working on. And I'm wondering, um, because I've never personally done any kind of pilgrimage, uh, what participants of, of those pilgrimages actually discover while they're, you know, going to these places and, and exploring yeah, these them? These began about um, 11 years. We've been doing it for oh, seven years now. I forget. 11? I can't remember. 10 years, maybe. And I just, you know, it just started. And it doesn't raise that much money. I'm not even a half a month's budget. You know, I spend forty, fifty thousand 50000 a month. And right. the pilgrimage brings in maybe twenty. But that's not really the point. That's one of them. It's, it's great to do that. And I'm always so grateful to all the people who come. Mm. But I've discovered by doing these every year, the benefit to me is just marvelous to see it, actually. I had no real preconception of it. I didn't do much pilgrimage myself, you know. Mm. But every year I've seen that the group we have, anything from 10 to 20, going to these places, you know, where the Buddha has been, it's extremely powerful. I mean, I 
say that with great sense, you know, not, not trying to be cliched about it. Mm. I've observed the effect that it has on people. One of the added pieces is we sort of streamlined it over the years. We start off in Kathmandu and we go to our monastery there and we have a six-day intensive course first. Oh, interesting. absolutely love, you know. Mm. And then we go to the holy places and we, we've got this book of practices. And whenever we go there, we just don't go as a bunch of tourists with our cameras. And I found that this is what people really like, you know. Mm. We go there, we do the circumambulation, we sit down, we meditate, we make offerings, we do prostrations, we have a little teaching. People love that part. They feel like, you know, we dedicate it to world peace. So people feel they're really doing something useful. But as well as these places really have some power. It's quite astonishing to see it, you know. And many of these places in the north of India, especially, no one would go there on their own, you know. So it's a very special opportunity for people. Mm. We call it chasing Buddha. Mm. Interesting. And, and how are you able to actually get into Tibet? Is that difficult? Well, this year we had to cancel. Mm. We had to go to Bhutan instead, but last year it's fine, you know, and maybe it'll be fine again. But these past few years, they encourage tourism because that's how they get their dollars. Ah, yeah. So last year, the one that I led was, um, or maybe the year before. No, that was, that was excellent. Very nice. Nice. And do you do, do you do a lot of traveling? I'm guessing so. It sounds like you... You're all over the place. Yes, I mean, my, given that for the last 20 years I've been one of the FPMT teachers, so-called, yeah. Lama's Oprah asked me to teach, then I'm much of the time, sometimes six months of the year, less lately, uh, I, I'm on the road teaching. I go to Australia, in the European centers, to Asia, this country, South America. Nice. And do, do you teach, um, besides the sixth day that you mentioned, do you teach other meditation retreats? I teach at the FPMT centers, whatever they ask. Sometimes I do 10-day courses, sometimes I do weekend courses, sometimes evening classes. It varies. Nice. And um, one other thing we just discovered was that this year, the Happiness and Its Causes Conference, which happened last year in Australia, is going to be in the Bay Area. And you're helping organize that. That's right. Yeah, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that conference and and what it's about. Yes, it's... um no, it's good, Vince, yeah. It's one of the, you see, what, the background to this for me over the years, going around all the centers and looking at sort of seeing how many of us in the Buddhist world, and this is how I'm a bit schizophrenic, I think, we all get all a bit holy and sit in the sky and think that business and management is all sort of rather samsaric, and I think it's really right. silly, you know? So I've seen over the years that really, for me personally, the non-profit kind of begging mode, I really learned to dislike it, you know? I'm kind of an active, <laughs> proactive kind of person, and I found that that kind of attitude is, just, it doesn't bring in much. And the simple fact of the matter is we don't like giving money in the West. But, but then I kept saying to myself, well, what works in the West? And it's very obvious. It's called commerce, you know. Uh. We, we love walking into a gorgeous restaurant, going to a spa, spending 100 bucks. We know there's profit at the end of it. We go, we're giving these people some profit, and that's your donation, you know. So I kind of figured, well, if I were running a Buddhist center, I would, I would use commerce to support it. And so we've got this project. This is a long-term thing called Sherab Plaza. We've set up Sherab Plaza Trust, which is like an umbrella organization for the center here in San Francisco, Chen Ling, the FPMT Center, and Liberation Prison Project. We work jointly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Th- it's just this is another discussion actually, but it's this long-term, very big project of using commercial activities to support the non-profit. So we've got this crazy, oh. project, like seven hundred million dollars worth. It's all a plan, it's a vision. We haven't, but we've sort of got we've got the seven-year, eight-year plan. We've got a team up in place. We're getting people interested. So one of the many things we're trying to do is to begin this Sherrod Plaza thing. We haven't got land or anything yet. Is to start using this name and getting it out there. When I was in Sydney last year at our centre there, Vajrayana, run by our colleague Tony Steele, he himself in his own private life, he's a Buddhist, a layman, he has a big company that runs conferences, and so he started these in Sydney. Mm. 
and they've been enormously successful. Last year's, which was the third, I think he had three and a half thousand people. And then I was one of the speakers, and I thought, well, this is crazy. We should do this in San Francisco, you know? Mm-hmm. So we've been organizing it since about January, full on. And it's one of our activities that it's, you can call it more commercial than giving Buddhist classes, because it's a two day conference and two days of workshops and charging the usual rate of around 500 bucks for those two days. Mm-hmm. So it's a different kind of uh, level of activity for us, but it's a really nice thing for me. It's an initiative of Sherrod Plaza Trust, and we're lo- kind of launching Sherrod Plaza with this activity because its sole purpose is to support the non-profit activities of the prison project and the Dharma Center. Mm-hmm. So anyway, to the conference itself, Tony's conferences in Sydney, and we've called them this, they're called Happiness and Its Causes which, of course, is a very Buddhist thing, trying to find the cause of something. We talk about suffering and its causes. Well, this is happiness and its causes. Mm-hmm. So we've got a team of about 40 speakers, really good quality people, uh, one of the best you know, psychologists of the 20th century, Paul Ekman. Yeah. We've got um, Robert Sapolsky, who's a, you know, is a, I think a biologist from Stanford who's written Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. We've got um, various from the Bay Area, really good people, you know, Tupton Jinpa, who's but is a Cambridge yeah. scholar, philosopher, yeah. and of course the Dalai Lama's main translator. Right. And he's running a thing called, you know, he's part of a thing at Stanford called Project Compassion. So different people from different perspectives talking about this whole business of happiness, you know? Interesting. So, so it's, it's pretty full on. And it's very, it's an enormous amount of work to get it done and marketing it, but we're bet. really hopeful that it will work extremely well. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's happening the couple of days before Thanksgiving? Exactly. It's the Monday and Tuesday, November 24 and 25, before Thanksgiving, you know, on the web, people can go to happinesssf.com, happinesssf.com, okay. and they'll find all about it, yes. Nice. So, we're, you know, it's a, it's a great idea, because I think often, too, we're seeing that people in the world, they don't want Buddhism necessarily, so why kind of sit up in our ivory towers presenting classes and four and a half people come? Right. You know, we like short sound bites. There's lots of really good, really good research these days, and it's actually coming, a lot of it, a lot of these people have actually been deeply affected by the Dalai Lama. You know, there's this marvelous organization called Mind and Life right. that's been running meetings between the Dalai Lama and various Tibetan scholars the last 20 years, meeting with some of the best brains in the West. And there's some really great research, you know, all the research on neuroplasticity, which is a brand new concept in the West right. that our brains can change. And a lot of this research is on the basis of these discussions. So it's right. some really good stuff happening in the West. And I think it's really excellent to combine these two, you know, not just be this strange Asian thing, you know. Yeah, Make totally. It very contemporary. It's important, isn't it? Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting buddhistgeeks.network 
And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.